Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day and welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. Great to have you with us wherever you are around Australia. Now, it's been wonderful over the course of the last few podcasts to interview my father, my brother, a great mate in farming in Tom Ball, a great mate through rugby in Ricky Dummigan. I'm continuing the thread and uh, this next mate or punter that I am interviewing is actually my best man and great mate. He will tell you that he is a better rugby player than me, always has been, a better skier than me. Um, He'll tell you he's a better godfather than me um, and probably a better handyman. I remember when when I was living in Bendigo years ago that JK came to see us I was newly married to my beautiful wife, Jane, and I asked for JK's help helping me string up a clothesline. And I'm willing to say, JK, that that took us all day and I don't think I ever hung clothes on it efficiently and proficiently to dry. So It wouldn't have held, it wouldn't have held up, Hutch. That's why you didn't yeah. hold up anything. So that speaks to how practical and how capable we are with the tools in hand. Um, but I'm willing to... Um, acknowledge JK that on all of those fronts you are better looking better father better godfather better rugby player um, and probably at least as good a skier as me so with that introduction welcome thank you Hutch and you know what I'd actually reverse all of that I'm not sure I am actually better you in any of those things other than skiing (laughs) yeah you really want to carry the skiing mantle don't you well, I do because I think it is the one where it, I, I actually really, oh, the others are debatable. Rugby, of course, I would claim, you know, uh, the scoreboard would tell a score, uh, tell a story that's objective. But, uh, and skiing, of course, I would, I would, you know, I'm pretty comfortable in, in that domain. So, um, yeah, anyway, father, I don't think I've got it. Godfather, I don't think I've got it. But uh, rugby, debatable. Um, but, yeah, skiing, I'm sorry, mate, I've got you. Got me. Absolutely. Mate, it's wonderful to have you join us for this podcast. Um, Just to introduce JK, he has come out of a construction degree and forged his career and moved up through some of the Australia's most significant construction companies and then landed in coaching and management consulting. coaching back to the leadership teams of these large projects. So I know when we roll into Melbourne, one of the first things my kids say as we drive along the the highway into town is, oh, JK built that stadium. And, um, you know, so I think what I'm getting at there is JK's moved really proficiently through um, a huge industry and now mentors, facilitates and leads the leadership teams as across different companies as they come together to complete projects. So with that in mind and as a leadership consultant, JK, and as managing director to the Alchemy Management Consulting Group, welcome. Thanks, Hutch. Nice to be here. Have I got that introduction right? Is that a fair assessment of what you do or could you give me a better snapshot of how you describe what you do and what Alchemy specialises in well i think it is uh, it's, it's actually pretty good but i think it, it, it um it sounded pretty impressive when you said it when i say it, it doesn't sound nearly as impressive but um so w- what do we do so alchemy we uh, this is um it's one of the worst kind of questions i can be asked at a weekend barbecue when someone says so what is it that you actually do and because the answer is never it's, it's never quick and easy. So if I was an accountant, I could just say accountant and you would t- kind of tend to get what that means. Or if I was a doctor, you'd kind of go, oh, do you have a speciality? Or if I was a lawyer, you'd kind of go, oh, yeah, what sort of law? And, you know, you tend to be able to kind of pigeonhole those, you know, those roles pretty easily. Mine is a little bit, uh, is a, is a little bit different that I can explain my role as leadership consultant. And all that does is have people ask another question about, well, what the bloody hell is that? You know, and then the next thing I'll say is, you know, well, we create breakthroughs for our clients and then they'll be like, well, what the bloody hell is that? And so um, if I'm uh, the, the 
why I describe what we do is, you know, you've got a, a construction project, you know, which is really, if you think about that, like a business. And it might be a business that would be turning over, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And it needs to come into existence very, very quickly because they need to, you know, from, you know, kind of the, you know, from the design process through to, you know, through to finalising a project. It need, you know, they need to, it's a huge number of people bringing them together, getting them aligned, getting them to work, you know, under the right context and the right kind of processes uh, to, to develop a project very, very quickly. So, you know, one of these projects might have, you know, five, 6,000 people you know, on them from a, from, a, uh, from a day-to-day perspective. So our skill set is how do you bring those, you know, those, yeah, that many people together in a coordinated way and have them work in a coordinated way such that projects actually get delivered? And uh, what you'll notice is if you've been driving through kind of uh, through some cities, some of those projects don't get delivered particularly well. And some of them do get delivered particularly well. And so our clients often use us as, a, as an insurance policy because they see what we can do and how we can bring people together um, and, you know, get them to work in a way which has projects be successful more often than not than when, uh, when, when we're involved. Um, so that's part of our job. So we'll kind of work at the front end of a project, setting it up for success. And then the other bit of our, of our, of our um, work and a lot of what I do is when projects aren't going well. So I'll, I'll get called in to get them back on track. And so that's what we call turnaround, sort of getting a project kind of turned around and back on track. So we either work up front getting people organised or we work when they are disorganised. 100%. JK, what can the cost be of one of these projects getting it wrong and not delivering well or on time economically? Well, yeah, well, it depends, which isn't a great answer, but if you, if you look at um, some of the, yeah, the big high-profile projects around Melbourne, um, the delivery cost of those projects uh, versus the, you know, in the tender box cost or what we kind of, what, what the client thought they would have to pay for the project and what they'll actually pay for it, that could be 50, 60% more mm-hmm. when these projects go wrong. And there is evidence around, you know, certainly around uh, the world of that, you know, being, um, you know, bigger sums of money than that. So if you look at uh, big projects like Crossrail at the moment, which is kind of, you know, in, 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 um, in, um, um, uh, England, so the underground in England, uh, redoing all of that. Um, I think they're, I think they're seven, eight billion dollars over the, you know, over, and that's all. They've put that all down to lack of coordination and, and lack of really good project management and leadership. So that the 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 cost, the the risk is 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 huge because you've got thousands of people on the job, and if that if you're not, if the job isn't progressing fast enough. Those people are being inefficient. The the daily spend is just so big that the the bills rack up very very quickly. Mate, I can only imagine that of those thousands of people that work on one of these major projects, that they must come from a massive amount of different companies. And so, at leadership level, are you working with six, eight, ten different companies having to come together? to get aligned toward a common goal and get a project done efficiently? Is that a fair assessment? Uh, I would, probably not six or eight, I would, but often four to six. I think the, the added complexity there as well is we'll often have, you know, a French company so or a, an Italian company or a Chinese company or, a, you know, a, you know a, an English company or, a, you know, so, so well, often you're dealing with, teams that are you know kind of multilingual and then yeah kind of english won't be their 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 kind of first language and so that's a kind of that's a complexity um how projects are delivered around the world is actually quite different and so there's not like there's one way to deliver a project so everyone comes in with their own different philosophy even within if you had two australian companies that were you know together that you know that they would have their different philosophies of how the job should be um, how the job should, should be delivered. So 
it's not only the multiple of organisations, there's also cultural differences there as well and also philosophical differences about how projects should be delivered that we're, that we're dealing with. And, and if you don't get that right, if you don't get that alignment right, then um, there's kind of huge costs associated with that. Mm. JK, the reason I wanted to explore this specific topic with you is that in farming we've got multiple families or multiple generations within one family. Yeah, got it, yep. Also got employed teams and we've also got significant subcontractor teams, be it shearers, um, harvest contractors, others, all coming together. And that construct of alignment and um, having agreement and philosophies, values, standards that everyone is willing to adhere to can make such a difference between a farm running highly highly efficiently and um, effectively versus the other. So my question to you is um, how do you practically align leadership from three or four companies that have those different cultural backgrounds and those different philosophies? Yeah, yeah, great question. So, well, so firstly, um, let's answer this kind of question from a, you know, from the, the you know, you said how. Um, it, it's through language. So we, and it's how we construct the conversations that we're having leads to alignment or, or doesn't lead to alignment. So I think that now that, that sounds really obvious to say and it's worthwhile saying that, you know, that it actually you really need to think about how you're having conversations to actually get alignment. That's the first piece. Now, there are particular um, skill sets and kind of, you know, um, technologies as we call them inside language, which is really important. So for the first thing is you've got to find some common ground and then build from that. So we always kind of say, you know, the first year, and we'll often, if we've got bought into organisations that are actually in some sort of breakdowns, there's real misalignment, we just find a postage size bit, size bit of, uh, of, of common ground and then we build out from that. So you've got to have the parties come together and find some sort of common ground. Now, generally, um, that will, the common ground you can find is around the future. So what, well, what is, it, is it actually that we're trying to achieve here? So be that a, a subcontractor that's coming in or generations of, of, of ownership of a farm, it would be the same sort of conversation. You'd want to be talking about, well, what does success look like and what are we trying to create here? What's the purposes of, of us coming together? What's this farm about? Having those higher-level conversations, what you'll find is people need to get, oh, you're on, you're, we've got that in common. As soon as people get, oh, we've got that in common, we've got some common ground, I'm then willing to kind of stand side by side you and look at the, and look at the world from there. And that's a, that's a really important aspect. The other part, which is the, often the, the missing part of language or conversation, you know, is listening and the ability of you to listen to the other parties, um, uh, what they want to get, and actually start really like, not just being able to recall what they've said, but really empathise with and really understand and really get what, the, uh, what, uh, what they want. And that's a real skill set. And so often what we'll find with, you know, kind of parties coming in, they'll be like, well, you know, this is what I want to get out of, you know, kind of where we're going here. They're not willing to actually really engage with, their, uh, with the other party to actually really like deeply, deeply listen to them and listen like, to the point where they can kind of really imagine, okay, well, I don't, that isn't, you know, what I, this isn't how I see the world, but I can understand that's how you see the world. As soon as you can do that, you can start creating solutions from their perspective. And that's that's a really key part. So, JK, I can imagine that some of the characters that you have to deal with have come through the construction industry and off the tools and they're 110 kilos and built like, and, and the, the traditional atypical alpha male. Um, is that a fair assessment? And 
it's it's interesting to think about those hard heads, if you like. Um, one, appreciating the importance of language. Two, being open to um, really thinking about their words and their conversation and being able to get to a point where they deeply listen and truly empathise. Um, is that fair? Because, again, there's a really common thread here between a typical farmer that we're asking to think about exactly what you've just described and that um, stereotype that I have in my head of someone who's come through the construction industry. Yeah, I, I, I guess that this that I don't often deal with that stereotype. I mean, I, I deal with yeah, I, I deal with a lot of engineers and builders, and yeah, and I deal with some guys that have come off the tools. And you know what? They're all human beings at the end of the day. What one of the big breakthroughs we have early on in these conversations? It, you know, if I if I you know I, I ask them, I sort of say, well, what? Yeah, if I was a fly on the wall, what would I see you doing all day? And they're like, oh, you'd see me building stuff. I said. Would I? Would I see you building stuff? They're like, yeah, yeah. Well, what would that? Yeah. Well, I'm kind of telling people what to do. Oh, okay. So I'd see you talk. Well, yeah, yeah. You'd see me talk. Well, what else would I see? Do well, you'd see me take phone calls? Oh, okay. So I'd see you talk on the phone. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, so do you do anything other than talk? And they're like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. No. All I do is talk. Oh, interesting. You talk for a living. Oh, no, it's not. Is it? They're like, yeah. Like, and 95, now I get it would be different for a farmer because they're, I can, you know, yeah, I've been on farms before and I see what farmers do. They do more than talking. They do more than talk about doing fencing. They do fencing. But in the construction world, you know, a lot of the people I deal with, they'll talk about the, the digging of a hole. And so the hours of conversation that go into the talking of the digging in the hole are often more than the physical act of digging the hole. And mm. so that could be a real breakthrough for people to kind of go, wow, I've never actually looked at language and how I construct language and how I use language to get results. And now because you haven't looked there, there's often some really easy quick wins. Sorry, Hutch. Just to jump in there. I completely agree with what you're saying, that maybe our farmers do spend a good amount of time doing as well as talking, but I think the point you're making is spot on, that language is such a powerful tool and it is critical that we're conscious of how we're going about it in leading our family, in leading our employed team and in enrolling and inspiring subcontractors or advisors. Um, and everyone around the farm business that we have. So there's so many similarities there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I feel, you know, if you think about the, the, the future of, your far, of a farm, you know, it only exists in language. Like it exists as what we say it's going to be, you know. Is it going to be this or is it going to be that? And I think that you, people I find really underestimate the power of that, of, of, of language and the way it has in shaping kind of what we do. So one of the really key points about, um, you, know, um, you know, alignment is obviously it's built around, well, what conversations are we having and how are we having those conversations? And not only it's all the, it's the listening and the, and the speaking. And I actually said something earlier on, it's agreement, and I think it's worthwhile distinguishing because agreement isn't, isn't required for alignment. It's not required to actually get people together. And I think it's a really important distinction that we draw for people that you know if there's a you can someone can have a perspective that you can be aligned to that you don't necessarily agree with and that can actually help people you know not feeling they need to get their way the whole time because it's alignment isn't about getting agreement it's actually about kind of going well you know what i would go about that in a different way but we're aligned in an outcome perspective and so i'll i'll it gives that then more power for someone to and kind of empower someone to actually do something. So I think distinguishing between alignment and agreement is an important part around how we work on bringing kind of diverse groups together. 100%. And I get how that can mean that you can move forward practically without full agreement. Absolutely. Which is so important. So a practical example on farm, two brothers, two households, 
married, both have kids, not getting on. How, yep. how would you have them um, find a common ground? And I, I think that construct of focusing into the future makes real sense. And how would you have it that they actually stop having grown up together, um, stop, listen and empathise at a different level to perhaps they have before? Yeah, I, I mean, a great uh, question I, you know, I, I, I would ask them is what, what are you committed to? So in those moments of having an argument around something, what are you committed to? Are you committed to the are you committed to the future of the farm, or are you committed to winning the argument? And because the the big bit there, I would say, would be you know yeah, there's there's you know well, we've both got you know we've both got brothers. We know what you know kind of those dynamics are like. But it's kind of like at some point you've got to be able to kind of get that presence to actually actually kind of go well. Actually, you know what I'm in this argument to win it. It's not necessarily what's best for the yeah best for the future of my family or best for the relationship with my brother. I'm actually in it to 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 dominate my brother right now, and in that moment of clarity, you you you've got that moment to really lead and get off it and kind of go well. Actually, let's kind of if I was committed to the farm being successful, I was committed to this relationship working out, how would I go about this conversation right now? Now, that could be difficult to catch yourself in the moment and it's incredibly powerful when you can, incredibly powerful when you can. There's a real self-awareness that is required and perhaps even letting go of ego um, where I'm less attached to winning the argument or winning the conversation um, with a view to make that common goal the success of the farm my priority. Yeah, then we'd say you know like but if you can create you know this kind of notion of the future and 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 you know the a vision for the farm if you can create that and it's bigger than you and that's that's one of the really key bits that we will will use that context for bringing teams together because if the if what you're working towards isn't bigger than you, then there's no need to need, there's no need to align, there's no need to kind of collaborate. The key is actually creating that, okay, well, here's what I want to create in the future, and it's bigger than me. So I've got to, I've got to be able to draw on other people here um, to actually uh, to actually achieve that. And that's a really important aspect of that. And so we'll is a kind of a bit of a language around being a stand for. So you kind of, okay, well, if I'm being a stand for creating that future, whatever that future is, how do I need to go about having this conversation right now? You know, mm. so in this argument with my brother, am I actually, am I contributing to the success of whatever I say that I'm a stand for? And that can be a, once you've really, you know, really clear, and this is why, you know, yeah, like strategy work and, you know, is so important. And also, you know, accountability, holding people to account, you know, kind of on the way through for, for you know, for these goals that we say that we're committed to um, is critically, critically important because um, it can pull us back and actually have, have us self-regulate our own, you know, our own behaviour. Mm. I want to come back to the accountability piece, JK. What other advice would you have for someone about how they can, be better at empathising. If if someone's finding it hard to empathise with another member of their family or another member of their team and truly stand in their shoes and not necessarily agree with but be willing to appreciate someone else's perspective, how can someone get better at that? Yeah, I mean, so listening we've touched on. So I would say the, the, the asking yourself the question, what what must be going on for that person right now? So you know, even with you know, and I see this with my own you know kids. If they're having a bit of a blow up, and it seems irrational to me, um, I you know, in those moments when I can kind of even in those moments, sometimes you know, I'm not I'm not strong enough to kind of hold my you know to kind of hold hold myself back from judgment. Just go, you know, what what must be going on for Tommy right now for him to be for him to be having that reaction. He must feel really scared. He must feel really threatened. He must feel, you know, whatever, whatever. Now, as soon as you can do that, I stop making the other person wrong 
and I start getting interested in, in their worldview. And as soon as I start getting interested in their worldview, their behaviour, what they're doing, starts to make a whole lot more sense to me. Mm. So I would kind of ask that question, you know, what must be going on for that other person? And really sitting with that, there's a requirement to remove judgment before we can empathise. Is that fair? Well, if you can remove judgment, you can actually listen, which then gets you to kind of get, because you've got to get into that other person's perspective, you know. And, and if I look around the world, there's, you know, I'm really interested in American politics right now, and there's this the profound lack of listening and empathy for each side of the, you know, kind of if you're left-wing or right-wing or, you know, Republican or, or Democrat, there's just this lack of listening and lack of empathy for either side. And what it, what it leads to is, is, is conflict mm-hmm. and, you know, and there's never any common ground formed. And so um, it, it is that, you know, that you know, and, and it's, all, it's just all around us. It's just all around us right now. And there's that real, you know, profound Profound listening is what is how I would say, and it's just to do that. It takes that, um, you know, what's going on over there for that person to be kind of saying that, to be behaving like that, to be reacting like that. What is going on over in that chair over there? Let me let me get to grips with that. Not judge it, just just you know, just to try and be with it. Yeah, I love that construct. That listening, sorry, interested versus interesting. Mm. And I've heard it said that the best leaders are more interested than they are interesting. When you reflect on some of the most impressive people that you've worked with as leaders, are they telling or are they asking? Are they interested or interesting in your experience? Um, They're interested, absolutely. Absolutely interested, yeah. And I guess the other thing is that as I've met, you know, many, many senior people, um, you know, kind of heads of organisations, you know, huge organisations and you know what, and, and there's, <laughs> they're very human, <laughs> they're very human. And so, um, but what does set them apart is, there, is them, they'll have a, something in particular around their mindset which will be, which will set them out from the crowd. Often they're not that smart. They're not any smarter from an IQ perspective. You know, they might be able to read a room, but they'll just know what to say. They'll know what to say. So, um, and they'll be able to, you know, kind of get through to and, and create reality for people is the other thing I would say. But it's, yeah, there is that absolutely being interested. And, and from that being interested, I can understand what drives you and, and what your goals are. And from that perspective, I can then start to collaborate with you because so I can start to work towards your goals. Um, you know, which often will mean that I can meet my goals as well. And that's what people discover when they start kind of creating this bit of common ground. They realise that they don't have to work in a combative way to get what they want. So, again, for our listeners, to what degree do you stop checking on your language as a leader, um, ask thoughtful questions that allow you to empathise deeply with other members of your family and team? And to what degree are you focusing on being deeply interested in their position and their philosophies rather than trying to uphold your own as it relates to the success of your farm business? I think it's a really delicate conversation, this, but just such an important one because I think the old, old school perspective around what it is to be a leader is the all-knowing talker who controls and commands. And I guess what we're talking about here is something that is very different from that, um, almost the opposite of it. Fair comment, J.K.? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Hutch. And I think it's the, you know, the, I think we mess up this, we have our view of what leaders are and, you know, if, you know, most Australian men, if you kind of go, well, you know, name a great leader and be like, oh, you know, Steve Wall or it'll be, you know, like, you know, um, George Gregan or it will be, you know, we tend to kind of take a sporting figure, someone like that. We kind of go, well, why is that? It's going, oh, because they were willing to get hit by the ball or they were willing to get take the kind of the hit for the team. So we kind of translate it into being quite into leadership being a physical thing. Now, in the business world, it's not. It's a language thing. And so, you know, 
I don't do anything other than talk. You don't do anything other than talk. Most of us, most of the time, talk. So the way that we actually express our leadership and show that we're a leader or not is actually by, you know, by, by talking. And then people will say, well, yeah, but it's actually kind of making sure that your actions follow. It's like, yeah, but I, I, that will just be having a courageous conversation. Like I say I'm going to have a courageous conversation, then I have that courageous conversation because all I do is talk. Mm-hmm. And most of the people that I deal with, all they do is, yeah, all they do is talk and they're willing to, you know, at a construction site, a lot of it, they're willing to have the really difficult conversations, you know, around keeping someone safe and, you know, that type of stuff. It's not a heroic physical act. It's a heroic linguistic act in 90, 95% of the cases. It's, I've never heard it articulated that way, JK. Thank you. JK, we've, we've talked about the importance of language, the importance of future pacing and finding common ground about deeply empathising and being interested and all those being sort of the hallmarks of really strong leadership. Where do you go from there in helping align diverse cultures? Yeah, okay. So well, let, so, so one of the really the things that I've learned about diverse cultures, and I'll, I'll talk, yeah, I'll talk, you know, Spanish, French, Chinese, Australian, kind of New Zealand, you know, English cultures, which is all the ones that I've dealt with either either here or when I've travelled overseas to work. Language, once again, plays such an incredibly important part of this. That, And what I've found is that, that those different cultures face problems and deal with problems in a different way. So yeah, the French, for example, who are doing a lot of work with at the moment, they, uh, they'll come at a problem. So if you, if you were to say, um, you know, if I was to say to you, what's de- you know, if I was to say to an Australian, what's democracy, they would start by saying, using the example first. So they'd say, well, that's like the Australian parliament or it, that's like uh, America or that's like the Westminster system. So they kind of use an example. If you say to a, a, um, someone you know, who's kind of brought up in the French culture, you say, well, what's democracy? They'll start with the philosophy. So they'll come from a, a philosophical perspective to explain the thinking that's in behind something rather than just kind of going, well, it's, it's like the Australian system. So one of the things is that that can be really frustrating if you're an Australian because it's like, no, I'm not interested in the, you know, in the philosophy of democracy, like, why don't you just tell me it's like Australia or tell me it's like the Westminster system? So once again, yeah, this listing becomes a really, a, a really important, a really important role. Now, also you'll find, you know, between generations, you know, I, I deal a lot with you know, young people and I deal a lot with kind of, you know, kind of, you know, baby boomers and I, you know, I deal with, you know, whatever the generation is after generation Y, you know, so there, yeah, and, both have different ways of communicating and both often can't listen to each other. Um, and because there's a, a, a different frame of reference that they're, that they're speaking from. So listening plays an incredibly important role. And I'm just going to go back to the future. You know, you, the, one of the really important things about, you know, that can cut through all of that is actually creating a future with a group of people. And, and them actually generating that together. Like, what are we going to be a stand for? Having that conversation with a group of people, it's incredible what you can, the alignment you can generate from, from that. Very different from, you know, when I tell you what, what, what the vision of the future is to when I create it. Massively different. In terms of influencing my behaviour and others' behaviour, that's a, a profound difference between being enrolled in a vision and me actually creating it myself. So bringing disparate groups together and having them have a conversation about what does success look like here is incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. In the context of a construction project, let's say it's a highway, JK, um, is, it, is it always and only about the successful completion of that project or can it be more than that? Uh, it's often multifaceted, multifaceted. So we'll often talk about there'll, there'll be the project and the experience of the project. So it's not only it's yeah, done on time, done on quality and, and done on cost. They're the kind of, you know, they're the easy ones. They're the very objective kind of views of, of, of what we want the future to be like. And there'll be much more subjective ones as well. Well, how do we want to, yeah, 
How do we want this experience to be for us? How do we want us to, you know, teams to grow? Or what, do we, what, what are we going to set out to actually for us to learn together? So once you kind of really round all of that out, you get a really quite inspiring view of what's possible. Um, now, there's still the kind of the doing of it because it's pretty easy to kind of say something and then not follow through on it, which is my favourite topic, accountability, but it's kind of then getting people to, to actually deliver upon that. Um, is the is the next trick, but the first trick is always to actually have a really inspiring vision that's cr- generated by the team. If you bring in an employed team member after that has been created, is it still possible? I'm just thinking about I recruit, I, rec- I set the vision for my farm, and then I recruit six months later. Is it still reasonably effective to? can enrol that new recruit into that vision. You yeah. redesigning it every time you build out your team, would you? No, you don't need to you don't need to you may need to redesign it, but probably but probably not. That the important bit here is that where I I have I grant myself the authority over my over myself. So it's actually kind of about me about me coming into your team and choosing to enroll into it to be enrolled in your vision and i think that's a really important distinction think about well how am i going to have that conversation with that person it's me finding my part in your vision because and then i'm and then i'm in like i like i generated it because i have generated it i just didn't generate it when you generated it but you've actually got to try and you know okay well here's what we've set this you know this vision out all this you know kind of however you language it for you for, you know, for, the, for the farm and me kind of going, okay, well, how, how, how can I find my, my part? That, as soon as I've done that, I've generated it. Mm. But that's an enrolment conversation. So you're not trying to sell it to me. You've got to present it to me in a way that I can actually choose to take it on um, and, and go with it. So it's allowing me as the new entrant to the team to find alignment in the vision that I have for me with you. Correct. In the vision that the company has. Yeah, yeah, and, and distinct from you've used the word alignment there. Distinct from agreement, like I, yeah, I might have used different words. Would be an agreement conversation, or can you recraft it to use you know these words or add this bit to it? Um, that won't, that's not necessary when you've got alignment. It's like okay, I get where you're going. I get there's value for me in that journey. I can see my role in how I can contribute. I'm on board. Now what happens is, from a brain perspective, that starts to then shape my actions. So then, and that's where you really want to get to, that, that, yeah, that, that's why you do this work with, with teams is that it actually then starts to shape their actions mm. and kind of lift up their standard of action. JK, at Farm Owners Academy, we talk a lot about having people aligned to a, a common vision. We talk about core value statements, codes of conduct, um, all intended to enrol and set a context or a framework for our farming families. Yep. We also have a, a really big focus on tight, um, concise and actionable strategic plans. Yep. Is the documented strategic plan piece key on these larger projects? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and interestingly, everything you've just talked about there, we do for construction projects. So the same methodology you're using for farms, we're using on construction projects. So, you know, getting getting alignment at core values and, and we might call them ways of working are just critically important, critically important. So Because once you can get those embedded in your team, it makes that, you know, the kind of the objectives possible. The strategy piece is also very important because, you know, a lot of our projects you know, aren't as long as a farm's life, but yeah, a lot of our projects might be kind of yeah, three, four years long. And so, you know, and we might be, you know, there might be three or four different management teams that kind of yeah, come and go during that, you know, that period. And so that the strategy document is a really important piece to keep people, uh, one, to, to link back to that kind of that, that charter kind of level stuff you're talking about there with the vision and the objectives and your, and your values. The strategy is the piece where it's actually about implementing that and actioning and actioning that. And so that's the piece that you can kind of then build your accountability around. So looping back, there was a really interesting distinction that you made 
about asking the question around all of that, how do we want for the journey to be? So sure, it's about, um, for us, it's buying the farm next door and clearing the debt and putting the kids through school and, you know, building out um, the construct of a freedom farm or whatever other sort of vision tangible vision statements we have but I love that question that you arrived and I can imagine asking it of farmers how do we want the journey to be yeah as multiple families in this business Fantastic. yeah because I think that that then really goes to talk about well what what's the pace of all that as well because I can imagine buying the farm next door there's a you know work your ass off for 20 years and do that or a year you know if we want the experience to be you know something that we can you know, kind of, you know, not burn ourselves out on. Maybe that's a 30-year goal, not a 20-year goal. And so it's really important because that's the bit that we often forget about. Well, what do we actually want the journey to be like um, in getting there? Because just like the outcome, you can design that as well. You can design that as well. 100%. I think one of the privileges that we have in farming, perhaps even compared to the projects you speak about, is that we've got 100 years. You know, we, we, we can design a vision that is inclusive of the next generation and build that out steadily and over time. So if it is buying the block next door, if we don't want to cook ourselves in the short term, that can be, a tw- yeah, that can be in year 12 to 15, you know. We've got to be thinking as farmers about the long term and creating a legacy and, and building out the long-term plan. And sometimes that takes the pressure, to your point, off what we need to achieve in the short term. Yeah, and I think you've just kind of brought something up for me. I, I did a lot of work with a, a Chinese company and their leadership was amazing because and it's a c- completely different perspective on time than we do. And I think that's such thing that we kind of miss. You know, you know, Australian companies, it's all kind of quarter by quarter, you know, or election cycle by election cycle. Um, whereas the, the the Chinese company I was dealing with, they're dealing with like like in 30-year planning horizons. And so they're like you know, you know, well, you know like, yeah, they, they bought an Australian company. It's like, why did you buy the Australian company? And it's like, they, they're talking like two generations away mm. about what, that's their reason for it. And it's like, wow. And then, and then you look at what decisions they're making now and it, they make sense in that context. But uh, in, this, in our world of quarter by quarter, you don't, they, the, the decisions don't make sense. You know, why are you doing that? Like, why, you know, like, you know because they're playing a different game, just playing a different game to yeah, to, to what we're playing. And all of that, JK, speaks to the importance of having a vision, having 20-year, 10-year, 5-year goals and a really robust, robust and documented long-term strategic plan. Most farming families don't have that and they're focusing intently on the season that they're in and maybe the season that's next. That- yep. Long-term visioning, visioning exercise, and strategic planning is just so important. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And you know what, Hatch? That's all in conversation. It's all in language. Hundred percent. To your point, it's the intangible that can only be designed through thoughtful and deliberate discussion. Absolutely. Yep. So, mate, coming down now to accountability, um, which I know is topic. Yep. Your favourite topic. So speak to me about the role that plays in aligning teams and allowing for effective execution when there are multiple companies involved in big projects. Yeah, and, and listen, once again, it's all about language. So what, what we, we speak to teams and we distinguish for teams is that that they are inseparable to their word, what they say they're going to do. And so, yeah, if I say I'm going to do something, you will judge me by whether I do that or not. And so we are inseparable from our word. And I think that's a really important thing around accountability to get is to, and also to think about when you're making a commitment to getting to doing something, start thinking about that like you're promising to do it. And that really gives a different frame of reference. You kind of, you're quite, we're quite careful when a promise falls out of our mouth. (laughs) Whereas, we often say we're going to do stuff and, you know, and, and I think really shifting people's language from, you know, yeah, yeah listen, that was, that's absolutely something I should do. Like catch yourself saying that type of stuff and kind of going, yeah, but, okay, what's the promise? Because that's, that's something that you can then really start relying upon. 
um, your own word. And I think once you can, once you stop relying upon your own word, it's a pretty slippery slope. And if you can't hold yourself accountable, how are you going to hold anyone else accountable? So I think that's that's a key point is, you know, be really, when you're around the domain of accountability, be careful how you use your language. Be careful how you use your language because it, it, it does, it creates reality for people and there's so much power. There's so much power in your word. Like, you know, yep, that's going to happen and finding a way to make it happen. But when it, and that you only do that when that's going to happen falls out of your mouth like it's a promise not like it yeah it should happen be nice if it happened you don't you don't you don't get into action about things that are nice to happen or should happen you get into action about the things that you will make happen and those are your those are your promises those are your promises so start thinking yeah oh, yeah accountability for me is all around that and if you write a strategic plan write it like a promise like this is going to happen you know because you know well i know when i promise something to someone you know it doesn't mean it happens every time but you know promises happen for me you know nine times out of ten if i'm just saying i should try to get to something that's one out of ten i get to do i get to do that so if you start to shift your frame of reference around your strategy document from Listen, it would be really nice if this happened in the future to I'm being a stand for making this possible. That, that really shifts your, your lens of accountability around that, around that strategy, a strategy document. The strategy document is where, you know, that, that vision gets, got, you know, kind of yeah, starts to enter the, in, into the physical world, you know, kind of through that, through that, um, that strategy document. Thank you, mate. It, it's interesting that with every commitment or promise that I make and speak to, that just by changing my dialogue, that can shift my level of commitment to it and also other people's um, confidence in my ability to deliver on it. Absolutely. It's, um, it's actually at the essence of integrity, isn't it? It is the absolute essence of integrity. It's actually seeing your word has integrity. So, you know, if you start thinking about your word like it's a physical thing, which is kind of an interesting way to think about, you know, language, but if you think about it, like if I say, you know, I'm going to be your best man, you know, you, you rely upon that like like you rely on sitting on a chair. So, you know, you're, you're when I promise to you, that I'm going to be your best man at your wedding, you're not hoping I'm going to show up, you know. You're relying upon me showing up. Just like a chair, you rely to sit on a chair, um, you know, you start relying upon that. And I think once you really get that that's how other people are relying upon, are, are treating stuff that's coming out of my mouth, then that, you know, you start to think, well, I should be more careful with what falls out of my mouth because people are relying upon it. People are relying upon it. And that's one of the, the key bits with, you know, my work with getting getting construction projects to work well. It's that, getting some reliability around the promises that we're making to each other. Yeah, I know Warren Buffett talked about when he looked at what, what makes a great investment in the companies that he invests in, he looks at the quality of their ability to execute on their strategy. Mm. Over any other criteria, he says, if their leadership can execute on their strategy consistently and on time and impeccably, that's a company that I would invest in. Yeah, that's integrity. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Because you can then start to trust what's coming out of people's mouths. So when you then sit down with the management team and they're saying, we're going to do this, you're like, got it. I get that's going to happen because you know what? I could, I could, your word has integrity. Your word has integrity. So, JK, changing gears, um, you have studied and a lot of what underpins how you support business leaders links back to neuroscience and yep. the neuroscience of leadership. I know you studied this intently years ago. Can you just, our, our farmers are scientists and biologists and deal with um, science in their everyday. I think they'll be quite interested in this. 
what is neuroscience and how does it relate to leadership? So the study that I did was, uh, you know, there's a master's in the neuroscience of leadership and it's really looking at how the brain works and in particular relating to the domain of, um, yeah, to the, to the domain of leadership. So, um, geez, where do I start? Where do I start? Um, so I guess one of the things is, um, like practically, um, what's going on when you get angry and you get frustrated and you get tired? And so let me just talk through that from a biological point of view in the brain because I think that might that might be kind of useful, actionable stuff that you know, if you heard it, you could kind of go, oh, okay, yeah. So, and I guess the the frame of reference here is. If you start to understand how your brain works, it gives you a lot of it gives you a lot of power to actually kind of stay present, because you can kind of you can go, oh, that's what that is. Oh, okay, got it, got it, and it can actually get you to be kind of more present. So if you're actually looking to up your leadership game, one of the really important bits is to you know kind of actually be able to remain present and remain centered when those around you kind of you know don't seem to have that ability. So let's just talk about kind of stress and how the and how that manifests itself in the in the brain. So the brain has what we call a it, it operates in two in, in two ways. It has a what we call a a toward response. So things that kind of you kind of get attracted to and want to lean into, and then you have a, then you have um, away responses. And the brain is basically uh, designed to maximize toward responses and minimize away responses so anything that you find threatening it will try and or difficult it will try and you know kind of you know kind of you know um have have you move away from it so and then also things you find pleasurable it will kind of you know have you move towards it so when you when we find things pleasurable um a a neurochemical uh, called dopamine gets released in our in our brains and so any sort of addiction you know um you know, to anything, including if you can kind of can't quite see that, including to a mobile phone, is is all around dopamine. So all of the yeah you know, the apps and you know like WhatsApp and oh not WhatsApp but you know um, yeah Facebook, Facebook and Instagram and all these things, they're all designed to give you small dopamine hits. And so even the chime on your phone, you know, the chime on your phone lets you know you've got a message that you must be. Then the way your brain interprets that is. Oh, I must be important. I got a message, so you get a, a, a small dopamine hit from that. So one of the things you kind of you, you, that your brain will want to do is kind of is move you towards those things that you get a dopamine hit from. Now, interestingly, what you get a dopamine hit for isn't necessarily the things that are, that are having you be successful. Like people that constantly looking up their phones, they kind of tend not to be the most successful people because they're spending, you know six hours a day on their, on their mobile phones. Although they're getting the dopamine hit, it's not the actual things that are making them, that are making them successful. Now, in a stressful situation where you've got kind of, you know, you're moving, where you're going to get that away response, that's when a, 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 something, a chemical called norepinephrine gets, gets released. And then what that's going to tend to do is it shuts down your, what's called your prefrontal cortex. So your prefrontal cortex is the big bit of brain at the front here takes up a lot of energy, takes up a lot of energy. So you, you, your, your brain tends not to not want to use it. It tends to want to go into auto drive um, many, a lot of the time. But what, it, what, what the norepinephrine will do is it will shut down this part of the brain and you'll start to go back into, into you know, kind of other parts of the brain that have you start acting in a more impulsive way. So what, what that explains is yelling. Screaming, you know, losing your temper—all of those are when you're actually disengaging your 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 prefrontal cortex, and you know you're kind of getting a, at what we call an amygdala, which is another part of your brain. And your amygdala doesn't do much thinking; it just does action, just does just does reaction. So one of the things you've got to you've got to know about norepinephrine that once it's once it if you get a big you know if you get a if you know you get a big away response and you'll know what that what that feels like 
it's going to take about 40 minutes for that norepinephrine to wash out of your brain. So if you get really pissed off, don't have a conversation for the next 40 minutes because you're just not going to be able to, you won't be able to engage your prefrontal cortex. So you know that saying that says, you know, like never send a, never send a, uh, a letter angry, always wait for the next morning. This is why, because often you'll kind of, you'll write it down, you'll scroll it down or scroll down an email and go, I'll send that in the morning. And then you read it the next morning. You're like, <laughs> God, I didn't send that. It's because your, your prefrontal cortex is actually being, is actually being disengaged. So one of the really important things that I think to learn about your, your brain is that when you're in that state of, you know, kind of excitement, then you can't, you, you can't actually kind of use that, that executive part of your brain, that, that kind of that prefrontal cortex. So you're not going to be making good decisions. Um, once again, you know, like uh, a lot of accidents, um, you know, in the construction industry, safety is a big thing. You know, it'll often be when that prefrontal cortex isn't engaged that we do unsafe, you know, we actually take unsafe acts. So when Pete um, and challenged and we feel that away from response, the best thing we can do is to walk away from the situation, cool off, calm down and come back to it with an executive mindset. Is that what? Yeah, which, which sounds like overly simplistic advice, but just knowing how the uh, biology of the brain works, it's the only thing you can do mm. because you're just not going to be making a rational decision. You're not what comes out of your mouth isn't. It's just not going through the same filter that you know it does when you're not in that state. And so, um, yeah. It's going to, and if, if, if it's significant enough, if it's a significant enough kind of away response, you got 40 minutes, you know, um, you know, go for a walk, you know, yeah. Flipping that on its head, right at the start of this conversation, you spoke about empathy um, and listening. Yep. What does, what, what chemical happen, what happens in the mind? when I am being empathetic and when I am actively engaged and listen, listening and genuinely caring to someone? Yeah, okay. So, um, well, then let me go, let me answer that two, two ways. There's, there's one, okay, if we get that like listening deeply is such a good thing, and I, I don't think anyone would say it's not, why don't we do it? Mm. Great question. So, so the, the, the answer to that is to listen deeply, you need to use your, it, it, it's activating uh, your, your prefrontal cortex. Now, we don't like to do that because it, it takes up a lot of energy. And what our brain is set up to do is, is um, predict what we think is going to happen. And therefore, we can switch that bit off and we don't need to use that energy. So what we, when, how that relates to listening is when someone starts speaking, what our, what our, what that, what our brain does is it goes, nah, I already know what this person is going to say. <laughs> they're going to complain. They're going to, they're going to do this. They're going to do that. I can just go into my own little world and not actually really focus because you've already predicted what they're going to, you know, what they're going to say. Obviously, you're not empathising there, but it goes some way that the biology of the brain goes, goes because if you actually sat down and intently listened to someone, you'll actually find your, your brain hurts a bit, like you'll get a bit exhausted by that. And so your brain is actually, whilst it's not a toward or, or away response, it's, 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 it's got this other thing where it just tries to conserve energy because it's like the prefrontal cortex is like, no, I'm going to need you at some point. I want you not to be fatigued when I need you. And so what it will do is it will try and predict what's about to happen in the world. Therefore, it can disengage that and go onto autopilot, which is, the, which is the, the bit of the brain back there. Now, what empathy creates, so that's a really interesting, interesting um, uh, experience in the brain. So something called um, mirror neurons, um, which is a really interesting thing. So... Um, I love watching cooking shows. Like I love watching cooking shows. And it's really interesting to understand 
yeah, that's because I like cooking. Like I love, love cooking up a big meal and I love watching people cook up a big meal, you know. Like my kids, they, they love watching other people play computer games and I've never quite got it until you understand mirror neurons. So the reason that I love, you know, um, watching cooking shows is because what my brain starts to do, it starts to simulate that experience for me inside my brain. So I start to get a dopamine hit, like a, a, a good feeling from watching other people cook like I was cooking. So when my kids watch, you know, other kids play, you know, video games, I, I, I just can't get my head around. It's because they enjoy playing video games. I don't enjoy playing video games. So I get nothing from watching someone else play a video game, but they're actually, their brain is actually stimulating that response. Now, empathy, if I'm truly empathizing with you, what, what you're getting in your brain is a simulation of, of that. And so that's actually correct. That's why, like, if you ever get that someone's kind of deeply empathized with you, both of you will be getting a dopamine hit from it because you're actually creating that, that mirror neuron inside your brain. You're actually, you're actually simulating what something, you know, what something feels like. It's really interesting and it helps explain why we don't naturally do it well because our brain is trying to conserve energy and predict the future instead of allowing us to be present in the moment. Absolutely. It's, so it's designed not to. It's designed not to deal with the present. It's designed to deal with the future. That's how it's designed. Which is probably why it needs to be a skill that if we want to become strong leaders that we've got to practice and get better at um, and retrain our mind to be able to participating fully it's a it's a muscle Mm. if you think about like listening which we've talked a lot about it's a muscle so if you actually practice doing something you get better at it you know and it starts to become something automatically that you just it it, it switches on without you having to switch it on but it takes you know you know like if i you know if i exercise my biceps they get bigger if i don't they get smaller you know List, if you start thinking about listening, um, is, is, is exactly like that. Yeah. Talking about the future, you know, that's a, that's a skill that you learn. If you first start to do that, it's a really awkward conversation. It's like, should we talk about the vision of the future? Vision of the future? Everyone's like, that sounds a bit, you know, that sounds a bit fluffy. You know, it's, a, it's an awkward conversation. Now, you know, you, you have that conversation a few times. It's a skill that you learn and you'll be able to, you know, then you'll be able to kind of replicate that and you get better at it. And you'll, then you, you might even find you start enjoying having those conversations and enrolling your team in, you know, in, in something that's, yeah, that's big. Some of the most successful and impactful people on the planet, when they look at their tendencies, a lot of their narrative is around dreaming and around big picture thinking and future thinking. And I find that so, so um, Walt Disney and people like that were so good at dreaming and so good at um, talking about and living in the future. I think absolutely it's a skill that we can learn and need to learn so that we can inspire our families and, and those people we need to come on the ride with us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah. In finishing, mate, um, and having had a really successful career in training, leading significant teams, coaching and facilitating, how important do you think it is to have a coach or someone outside your business helping you on some of these things that we've spoken about? In, well, in, well, incredibly, because that's my business, you know. <laughs> so I've got a vested interest in saying it's very important. But I, I, I'll, I'll give an as-lived experience of that because I think uh, to give it that some context is that, you know, dr- dreaming big is something. So actually being able to say, you know, this is what I'm a stand for and it being really meaningful is, 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 a, is a great thing and, um, you know, I have I have a skill set in being able to take people through that conversation, which is which is important. However, um, the other bit is actually is the delivering upon that and being able to execute on that. So going back to the, the Warren Buffett um, thing that you said earlier. So it's one thing to say that you're a stand for creating something. It's the it's, the, it's another it's it's then the taking action bit 
often seems really difficult. And so my role is not only with you know, working with projects, it's not only getting them to see the world in a better way or their project in a better way, is then holding them to account to actually doing what it takes. And that's a, that, that can be a pretty confronting conversation sometimes, but that's, it's so critical um, yeah, in that, in that convers- in, in, as, as part of the work that I do is actually you know, getting people to do what's required to actually deliver upon that. And yeah, it's, it's easy to say, you know, well, this is what I want, you know, this is what I want for, for, you know, for my future. It, it's, it's harder to then to actually do, uh, to do what it takes. And also you're going to get stuck at times. And so having an external person can help you reframe what's going on and actually start seeing it more closely to what's reality rather than kind of strip away the emotion of, the, you know, of, of whatever's going on and help you get into action again and kind of get you out of whatever, whatever you're stuck in and whatever your blockage is, is to actually help, help you remove that for yourself. So that's the, you know, the really important bit that I see. It's not only the setting the vision, it's then rigorously, you know, and compassionately but rigorously holding people to account for that and doing what it takes to, to deliver upon that. I love how you talk about that accountability is your favourite conversation and it's really nice to talk with you about the importance of that with your clients but it's so consistent with our clients and a large part of why people come on board with us is to get that support around vision and strategy but more so to get that accountability around execution. Yeah. Okay, it's been wonderful to speak with you and um, perhaps a different style of conversation to that that we get to have when we're with our kids and with our families. But um, I always enjoy connecting with you on a professional level as much as I do as a great mate. And um, I shouldn't be surprised at all by just how accurate and articulate articulate you are around um, helping people get the best of themselves and helping teams come together to achieve significant outcomes. So thank you, mate, for your time. I really do appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Hopefully uh, whoever's listening gets some value out of it. Absolutely, JK. So many of these things that we talk about are so consistent for our farming families, and so I look forward to sharing this with them. Awesome. Thanks, Hutch. Thanks, JK. So, ladies and gents, a, a wonderful conversation around the importance of language around the importance of finding common ground, truly empathising with those people on your team that you want to bring along for the ride, deeply listening and appreciating people's perspective around the fact that we can be aligned without necessarily having agreement, around when we use our word, actually speak what we intend to do as if they're promises. There are so many key insights in this that can set us up to be better communicators, better leaders and more aligned teams on farm. So I hope that's been incredibly valuable for, for, me, for you. I've got a lot from that. And so once again, JK, thanks so much for your time. To all of you, I look forward to checking in again in coming weeks. But for now, my challenge to you is to take a moment to stop and reflect on how you can turn up with a better word and a better language to those people that you care for and work with. Thanks so much. Take care, guys, and bye for now.